This is Cotecast, and this is the Care of the Elderly podcast for debate, discussion and analysis of issues related to geriatric and general medicine. And my name is Vicky Gibson, and with me on this Cotecast today is our star guest, Dr James Frith. Hello. Um, who is newly appointed uh, consultant geriatrician and senior clinical lecturer with special research interest in falls and syncope. And of course, fellow registrar and co-host Mark Garside. Hello. And today our Cotecast is on the topic of falls. So before we start the discussion today, we always like to open with an icebreaking question. So our icebreaker for today is, what was your most embarrassing fall? And first of all, I'm going to hand over to our star guest, James. Well, I haven't got one that's particularly embarrassing. Mine are all the boring types just on <laughs> the ice on the street. Um but Julia Newton, who you'll know, one of the professors here in Newcastle, she was on her way to a meeting uh, in 10 Downing Street uh, to meet Samantha Cameron. And you know, Julia's quite tall, so she doesn't wear high heels very often. But on that day, she dressed up and not wearing high heels very often. She fell down in the street while she was rushing there, grazed her knees, <laughs> and she turned up to see Samantha Cameron with blood dripping from her. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I don't think you can beat that, can you? Well, it's, it's the first impression that's the most important, isn't it? That's what they say. Um, that is a good story. Yeah. And she's 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 allowing you to air that. Yeah, does she know that you're telling the story on her behalf to no, the doesn't. entire internet? She doesn't know. Good, good, good. She does now. <laughs> but, you know, we all have comedy faults, so I'm sure it'll be appreciated, especially being part faults. And Mark, any any embarrassing moments for uh, for you? I'm sure yeah. there's many, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, f- fall-related embarrassing moments, yeah. Um, I had one when I was, I think, about 14. Um, and it was, as James has uh, said, uh, a fall on the ice. I was running around at school and I slipped on the ice. But it was a it was a biggie. Like, I did it properly. I landed flat on my face, didn't have time to put my hands out to stop <laughs> myself, and knocked out um, one and a half of my two front teeth. Um, and what makes that particularly embarrassing wasn't just the spectacular way I fell and smacked my face on the floor, but it was the fact that at 14, it was the age where I just about started noticing girls and there were some girls in school that had arranged to uh, to have come round to my house that weekend and you know thinking oh, no. who I can do to impress them oh, no. and uh, <laughs> yeah I suspect um, you know wonky jagged broken teeth and a split lip probably didn't do it so uh, that's why that was my most embarrassing form <laughs> start as you mean to go on yeah. <laughs> so uh, so I've had several embarrassing falls in my life um, but you know the one that sticks out to me was a particular catastrophic uh, crash that I had when I was skiing actually when I was at school we'd gone on a ski holiday and I was about 12 or 13 and I was uh, I was skiing and as you do when you're a child you kind of think you're invincible and I hadn't quite learned to stop and that was a terrible combination <laughs> and I uh, I crashed into a whole line of separate ski schoolers and managed to just <laughs> knock them all down like dominoes and about 12 people fell down and everyone was just all over each other on the ground <laughs> and I was blamed for the whole thing. <laughs> Rightly so. So, so, I, <laughs> so I started as I meant to go on as well so that was that was the first of many anyway. <laughs> so now we've sort of touched on the subject of how everyone falls over and it's quite a common theme. We'll kick things off with our topic today, which of course is falls. So James, first of all, tell us about your role and how you got there. Uh, well, between uh, my SHO jobs and being a registrar, 
I did a PhD in the Falls and Syncope unit in Newcastle, and that was looking at falls and the autonomics um, in people with liver disease. And um, at that time, I wasn't entirely sure what career path I was going down, but when I started working in falls and syncope, I was absolutely hooked. It was the first thing that really um, gripped me, and I really felt like I got it. Um, and uh, so my interest um, grew and grew and grew, and then there were all these unanswered questions, and uh, that's kind of inspired me to carry on with the research after I finished my PhD. Great. And so then I finished my registrar training and I was lucky enough to get a fellowship to continue doing research for the next five years. But that's looking at postural hypertension, which is my particular focus. Great. So it kind of kicked off your interest and you just kind of stayed with it and it's developed from there, really. Yeah, I feel like the only reason I get out of bed in the morning is for postural hypertension. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a clinical role as well, James? Yeah, I do three clinical sessions a week. Uh, they're all in falls and syncope, but I do some general geriatrics. Great. So it's just showing you that basically geriatrics has a lot of different legs to it. Yeah, well, actually, one of my pet hits is when people say they want to do geriatrics because it's general medicine, because I very much disagree that it is general medicine. I think it is a subspecialty, um, particularly for frailty, but then other things like falls and syncope, which are huge. Yeah, so there's lots of different different parts to geriatrics as well, which keep it interesting. And it is, it is general to some to some degree in the sense that you know you you involve most systems of the body when you look at geriatrics. But there are lots of specialities where you are focusing on on certain things and, and something very specific, and you have to become a specialist in your own right there, don't you? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I think we've made that point on the podcast before, isn't it? It's not just GIM exclusively mm. for older people. Mm. Um, it's factoring in all the, the physiological changes that happen when people get older and specialising in the things that are more common uh, in older people. So why why are falls an issue, James? Why do you think, why is it such a big topic? Why do we worry about it? Well... On a very personal level, um, my granny, uh, she used to love walking and um, going to the Methodist church. She used to play the organ and do the flowers for the church. And she had a fall and it was her first fall and then she stopped leaving the house. And that ruined her social life. She didn't see her friends much anymore unless they went round to her. So personally, I really felt the impact of falls. But on a bigger level for the economy for example falls cost the uk two billion pounds every year which is huge and it's in the top 20 most costly medical conditions Mm. for an individual the consequences are injury Mm. pain fracture but psychological as well so social isolation depression Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing that people don't think about is if someone has a fall and then the family starts pampering around them and then they lose um, mobility because the family won't let them do anything. So there's all sorts of different consequences. Yeah. I, I often think it's a bit of a vicious circle, isn't it, that people lose confidence and all the things that you've said happen. And it almost it almost sets the sets them up to have more falls, doesn't it, if, if you don't uh, intervene earlier on to try and support them. Exactly. So that loss of confidence um, alters people's gait and their balance. So they might start furniture walking because they're worried about falling, but 
any alteration to their gait puts them at an increased risk of falling again, and that's the vicious cycle that they have. Mm. And, and we, we call that fear of falling syndrome, which is a huge risk factor for falling again. Mm. And why do you think some people are a bit resistant to, to getting help if they fall over? Because I don't know about you, but I when I do clinics um, with patients that come in, they've often had several falls before you see them or um, they haven't wanted to tell anybody. And multiple times they say to you, you know, well, I didn't want to tell my doctor, I didn't want to tell my family, or they're brought in by Mm. family because family find them on the floor and they, you know, they're the ones that bring them into hospital and and make them tell you what's happening. They're often quite resistant to it. Any thoughts on why that might be? Well, I think there's a a few things. The first one is that people associate falls with being old and frail. And if they admit to people that they've fallen, they're worried that they'll be seen as a frail old person who shouldn't leave the house. Then um, another worry is that they'll be put into a care home. That's a very common one, actually. Um, so that often involves counselling them that, that every, that's not a reason by itself to put someone in a care home and then they worry about things like an occupational therapist coming in their house ripping out their rugs putting handrails in everywhere the way around that is I try and sell it as it's a way to keep independent rather than a way of preventing falls but all of those th- things people worry about mm. so stigma I suppose mm. and as we've already said the first question it's not just old people that fall everybody falls Mm. and so we need to try and shift our thinking yeah absolutely Mm. alter perception as well um so just moving on to sort of i mean obviously our listeners and our coticast is aimed at the sort of junior doctor region as in sort of foundation core medical that sort of um audience uh, as well as other health practitioners as well who deal with elderly patients and who deal with uh, these sorts of issues and and general medicine and so we try and do a little bit of education as well without it getting too dry (laughs) in these podcasts and so I guess one of the things that we can use your expertise on is thinking about um, you know what are the sort of common and easily overlooked causes of falls that we see um is, I find that a difficult question to answer. Falls, in my opinion, are not very simple. We know there's about 400 or more risk factors for falls, which is ridiculous, and probably many of them are based on not very good pieces of research. I'm just I'm just having nightmares about a pro forma ticky box in 400 <laughs> <Yeah>. square. <meters. laughs> That'd take time. Yeah. <laughs> So the important thing is to try and address the ones that are reversible um, and the ones that consistently appear in research as being big risk factors. So the simple things that we should try and do for people who have a fall is make sure that they see their optician regularly. We should make sure they've got healthy feet. And there's lots of little tricks about having healthy feet. Um, I think it's the Age UK website has... um, information on looking after your feet and um, tips about uh, keeping them clean and moisturised and getting your nails cut and things like that. And you can get domiciliary visits from opticians and chiropodists. And I think the the single most important thing is exercise. And when it comes to falls prevention, it needs to be multi-component exercise. So... Just doing exercise in the gym to strengthen the muscles doesn't reduce falls. And the trial that looked at that actually increased injuries. 
So when we say multi-component, we generally mean it needs to be strength and balance. Mm-hmm. And there are generally programs available specifically for people um, to join a class to do falls prevention exercises. Or for people who don't want to join a class, someone could come and visit them at home to leave instructions and then let them do it at home. Mm-hmm. I say exercise is the most important thing. Mm, which is often often hard like you say if you've got someone who's fallen they lose their confidence and then trying to get them back into that again can be quite difficult yeah and um, because you think you're going to fall over again it is and i think the, the word exercise isn't helpful because people imagine that they're going to be doing aqua aerobics or jumping up and down and things but some of the exercises can be done while sitting <coughs> in a chair mm. yeah not necessarily treadmills and oh, barbells yeah. and yeah. yeah okay um I think it's really interesting to uh, to hear you talk about those sorts of things because uh, I think it it gives people an idea about what we should be aiming for in the the medium to longer term. Um, I imagine a lot of people listening to this, their first encounter with somebody who's fallen would probably be whilst they're an inpatient and they're the first person asked to come and assess them. Um, do you have any? Um, insights or nuggets that you would give them as a, a general strategy to adopt in approaching these people? If it's definitely, if it's a first faller, then you, you are in a really powerful position to change this person's life because if someone falls once, there it's the biggest risk factor for falling again. Um, so do something for this poor person who's had their first fall. And if you're seeing them in casualty, um, or even on the admissions unit, the first thing to probably make sure is that there isn't an acute medical problem that's caused the fall. Yeah. I remember a case I saw once on an admission suite, someone who came in with a fall and I discharged her, and then she came back in with a PE, and so the first fall was probably a PE. So think about the medical causes, why mm. people might have fallen down. I think there's a there's a tendency for people to write mechanical fall as well in the notes. Uh, I don't know what pe- I don't know what you think. <laughs> there's there's a lot of distaste for that in this room at the moment. I don't think people are liking that statement, but you see it a lot. You see it a lot, especially in A and E, Clarkings, and and I think it's just something that's been banded around for so long that people can't let go of it at the moment. I'm, I'm sure James will have lots of examples about um, genuine pathology that has been labelled as a mechanical fall, <laughs> but um, we've got a, a mutual colleague who you'll be working with at the moment who uh, uh, I know quite well, and, and his uh, one of his pet hates was people say mechanical fall, and he used to say there's no such thing as a mechanical fall unless you get hit by a JCV, <laughs> which, uh, which I like, so I, I use that one. That's quite good. I'm actually not particularly bothered about the term, just as long as people think about what investigations they're going mm. to do for that person. I think the problem for me with mechanical falling, and stop me if we're sort of veering uh, too much off the main topic, but is that I don't think that people really know a lot of the time what by, what they mean by that. And mm. I think if they write it in the notes, then the person who then takes over the care of that patient doesn't necessarily know what they mean by that. Um and it could be that that they mean the person just tripped, had a slip or a trip. Um, but then often I find that there's 
there's a reason for that. It might just be an accident because they're a bit clumsy, or it might be that this person is um, slipping or tripping over things because they've got uh, sensory neuropathy, for example, or, some, or something like that. And I, I just think that it discourages you from thinking beyond mm. that initial mechanism if you write um, mechanical fall. And sometimes it's just wrong. Sometimes people just write it, I think, because they don't know what else to write. They write yeah. mechanical fall. We assume that they mean the person slipped or tripped. Mm. But actually, when you talk to them, it sounds like they've had a, a, a vasovagal syncope or you know various different things and um my opinion is we should just ban it all together <laughs> but obviously you're the <laughs> you're the expert it's a bit more so, generous yeah you're much more generous is there any people who present to any who've had a fall about 80 percent of them have a gait abnormality mm. so that's something that when you're seeing someone who's been admitted always watch their gait and it's more likely to be abnormal than not I think about 75% of people attending A&E have a balance abnormality and around 50% have um, a medication that might contribute to their fall. Yeah. And so they're the three um, biggest things to think about in the clerking, the admissions clerking. Mm. And I think, I think that again, just going back to that mechanical fall, I think once one person writes it, it's, the tendency is for everyone else to follow on afterwards and nobody then thinks about the history properly. Um, so that's that was that's my kind of issue with it. Sometimes it just gets banded along and everyone assumes it without taking the history properly. And I think the key thing probably is if you if you see the word fall, you just go back and start again and take a detailed history. Um, and as you both James and Mark have said, just uh you know, you have to think about the whole picture as well. It's like being a detective, yeah, much, yeah. much like medicine. You know, everything is, is really being a detective, but particularly so in these cases. Um, and you almost have to think of all the possible causes and, and kind of rule them out as well. And, and you brought up a really important point there is the overlap between falls and syncope. And, and that's why we have falls and syncope units set all in one place. And I think the other thing we're thinking about people falling over as well is there are a number of people who will tell you that they categorically did not black out. Yeah. And it's because they can't remember it. <laughs> um, you know, and they'll come in with their big black eye and their bang on their forehead, which should be a massive warning sign that they potentially did black out because they haven't had time to put their arms out to stop themselves or have to think about it. And you know, they just won't remember they've blacked out. And so asking them, did they black out, isn't necessarily uh, going to give you the correct answer. You may have to dig a little deeper as well. Yeah, and along the same sorts of lines, I see fairly frequently that people will say things along the lines of, oh, I, I must have tripped or I must have banged oh, myself. Yeah, I always say that. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's very easy if you're busy and you've got loads of things to do and trying to fly through the car mm. clerking just to write down what they've said. Um, but if you stop and explore, well, what makes you say that? Are you just guessing or, um, what do you, what do you actually remember? And the majority of the time, if somebody, that, that's the little warning flag for me. If somebody says, oh, I must have done this or this must have happened. Yeah. It's probably a sign that they don't remember. True. So if they don't recall hitting the ground, then that implies they've had a syncopal episode. Yeah. And just in terms of thinking about causes of falls, obviously, you know, we've got the mechanical, well, not the mechanical variety, yeah, okay. can't say that, can <laughs> I? The trip and fall, I got shot by Mark. The trip, <laughs> the trip and fall, <clears throat> fall variety for a, a number of reasons. And then we've got your syncopal sort of falls as well. And what sort of things do they, do they encompass? The syncope? Mm. Uh, well, syncope can, is 
usually caused either by a rapid drop in blood pressure or a rapid drop in heart rate, but it could be any other cause where there might be an interruption to cerebral blood supply, such as a, a very rapid heart rate, but we don't see that very often. Um, so for the, the rapid drop in blood pressure, we think vasovagal syncope, which is a typical fainting episode, and most people will get the warning that it's about to happen. They'll feel dizzy or lightheaded, particularly in younger people. It's a bit more complicated in older people because often the drop in blood pressure is so rapid that they don't seem to form a memory. And once they re- regain consciousness, they don't remember that they did have dizziness beforehand. Then there's this carotid sinus syndrome, which I mentioned, and that's a sensitivity in the um, mechanoreceptors in the carotid arteries which only really seems to affect older people, um, typically over the age of 50. Um, And if the carotid um, gland is overstimulated, it can result in either a drop in blood pressure or a drop in heart rate. Mm. And usually that presents with unexplained but regular falls and typically with facial injuries. And then the third one is postural hypotension, which is usually straightforward because that's falling after um, a change in position. Mm. Great. So that's good to know. So just things to think about when you're, you're clerking somebody with, with a fall is just, you know, if you've got that list in your head to think about, you, you generally won't miss anything then. I suppose the other one is arrhythmias. So it, I don't tend to worry that people have had an arrhythmia if they've got an entirely normal 12 EDCG. Um, but the clues that someone might have a cardiac problem would be if they're losing consciousness while sitting or lying down, if they have a cardiac history, or if there's any um, conduction abnormalities on the ECG or ischemia. So thinking about that, say you're a junior doctor on the ward or in the hospital on the acute unit and you're seeing somebody with a fall, how would you go about assessing them in a logical fashion? Um, I suppose it's all the same as with most things is to make sure there's nothing acute happening now that you need to do something Mm -hmm. about, like the PE, which can cause Mm -hmm. syncope, or a stroke, which might be the reason why someone's had a fall. If you've excluded the acute things, then the logical thing to do is to take a very thorough history that will help direct where your investigations are going and the examination too. So Mark mentioned earlier on about having a peripheral neuropathy and the clue in the history might be that they keep catching their foot regularly on something and they have a foot drop. So it's very much dependent on what you find in the history. Mm. But if you've excluded the acute things you can start thinking about sending someone home and having investigations and follow-up as an outpatient, Mm. really. And what sort of investigations do you think somebody with falls might need? Mm. So I I keep banging on about gait imbalance, but it is one of the biggest things. Make sure you watch the gait. And it's also probably useful to get a physiotherapist to look at the gait as well, because they do it far more often than we do, and they can do a much more detailed balance assessment as well. Um, uh, Investigations, if there is something abnormal on the ECG and there is suspicions in the history um, that there's something going on, then you could arrange some ambulatory monitoring. 
24-hour monitoring isn't particularly useful unless they get their symptoms regularly, so dizziness or regular falls. Um, it just depends whether you can arrange a, a longer period of monitoring. Um, you can get seven to uh, seven days monitors, three-week monitors or longer in some places. And simple things as well. So haemoglobin is very important in someone who might mm. have postural hypotension. Um, what other things? I think just clues from the history. Well, let me put it another way. Um, of all the patients that you see in clinic, for example, um, are there any uh, occasions that you can think of where simple things have been missed in hospital or, or things that keep coming up where you think, oh, you know, they, they should have done this before sending the mm, referral? Good question. No, I had one this week. The... Um, a poor lady who has Alzheimer's dementia had fallen. She's got a mechanical heart valve, so she's on warfarin. And she um, fell on her chest and she had a big chest wall hematoma. And I'm talking big because she had to go into the cardiothoracic surgeons and have it drained. Um, so warfarin was stopped and she's restarted warfarin. But they referred her to the falls and syncope unit because she'd had a fall and well done them. I'm so glad that they did. But they didn't want her to come over because of her dementia and they didn't want her um, to be confused and um, agitated on coming over. So I think that she wasn't quite stable yet. Um, so I looked at the referral letter and you should have seen the list of medications she was on. So uh, numerous antianginals, antihypertensives, as well as a denepazil, mm. lots of things that could have caused postural hypertension or um, yeah. bradycardic episodes. Um, so that was a simple thing that someone, probably one of the juniors rather than the surgeons, could have easily picked up and done something like yeah. that. I mean, it's an interesting point. I think you're absolutely right. Um, but there's sometimes a tendency, I think, to use the specialty clinics such as yours um to to perform that sort of role and i i think that people will often shy away from maybe tweaking some of these medications yeah. because they think well they're going to the force and sync clinic. Yeah. but a lot of it comes down to confidence and people being comfortable uh fiddling with the medications and so on um and perhaps the surgical team didn't didn't have that confidence but I mean, it's a good it's a good point, isn't it? The simple things there could yeah. have been looked at potentially, like a lying and standing blood pressure. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I think just a holistic approach to, to any patient really is the key thing, isn't it? Just thinking about every aspect of it. And, yeah. You know, thinking about social, thinking about medical, thinking about medication. Mm. The, the medication <laughs> issue is not always so straightforward because it's very difficult to perform a trial in stopping medication mm. um, to see what happens because they're normally on it because they need to be. Mm. Um, but back in the days when it was much easier to perform research without all the ethical regulations. <laughs> Pesky ethics. <laughs> <laughs> Someone did a trial, and I think it was in um, some sort of psychiatric hospital with people on antipsychotics, and they randomised people to either stay on their antipsychotic or be put on a placebo which matched, so they still thought they were taking their antipsychotic. Mm. And the ones who stopped their antipsychotic medicine fell less. So we mm. know that we can prevent falls by stopping antipsychotics. And in um, trials that have looked at medi uh, medication as risk, risk factors, usually the psychiatric ones are the ones which are associated with falls 
much more than the antihypertensives and antianginals. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm. And that includes antidepressants uh, and, of course, sedatives. But like you say, it's quite, you know, it's, it's you're a brave person to go in gung-ho, stopping lots of medications, aren't you? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, potentially making things worse. It's all got to be done uh, in a very controlled fashion and, and, and something that's quite well monitored as well. Yeah. I found it easier um, to stop antihypertensives than I do antipsychotics. Yeah. At the HIVET trial, which showed that older people still benefit from having their antihypertensives, but then there's been some changes recently. I think there was an American guideline about having a higher threshold for starting antihypertensives in older people. Um, yeah, so my understanding was that... Uh, the evidence supported the use of uh, antihypertensives in older people who were more active um, and the uh, frailer uh, end of the, the, the population who are less active um, get less benefit from it in terms of risk prevention and are more likely to be harmed by it. And uh, so I, I guess that, that just kind of reflects what we would maybe tend to do in real life, which is perhaps be a bit more pragmatic and worry less about the targets and guidelines in somebody who is frailer with lots of comorbidities than we would be in uh, somebody who was otherwise uh, fit and active and healthy. The, the point about stopping antihypertensives is a good one that probably most unis should be able to feel comfortable yeah. doing if, for example, you think the fall is blood pressure related yeah, and if you've got a postural blood mm. pressure drop and there are boatloads of antihypertensives, it's not unreasonable that you can start um, adjusting the doses of the medications downwards. You don't need to blanket cross off everything yeah. on their cardex, but, it, you know, that's what the same medicine's is, about. Is anti-anginals? Um, mm. I see a lot of people on things like isosorbide or diltazem and I say, when was the last time you had angina? And they'll say, uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> time time yeah. to wean off. Yeah. And that happens a lot. And I think especially in people who don't, in sort of older patients who don't necessarily go to their GP as yeah. quite as often, um, you know, they, they're often on medications that they, they've been on for years and years that they don't necessarily still need because of sort of physiological changes in their own bodies and you know things have changed they've lost weight etc etc and they don't necessarily need all that anymore so sometimes that the, when a patient comes into hospital it's a great place for you to start thinking about whether you know you can make adaptations here of, of patients that possibly haven't had things changed in years and years yeah. and it's it's your opportunity to do that for them and they'll be grateful. Time. They love having them still. They do. <laughs> they do. They do like medicines. Um, okay, James, what actually happens in a falls and syncope department? It's kind of a place where people go and nobody really ever seems to know what happens. Um, you know, you kind of fill in that referral form from the acute admissions unit and it disappears off to somewhere and then the patient disappears off and you never really know what happens to them again. So if you just enlighten us a little bit as to what basically happens in, in that department and where we're sending people to when we, we send them in your yeah. direction. Yeah, including tilt tables, because before I worked in a falls and sink clinic, <laughs> I'd never seen a tilt table. I'd heard about it and I had all kinds of things in my mind yeah, about exactly. people being strapped to tables and turned upside down <laughs> and various sorts of things. So. People um, might be also be said that there was an episode of CSI where they had a tilt table and I think they proved that someone didn't do the murder because they... Um, they fainted at the sight of blood, and I think that they, that showed that they couldn't have murdered this person or something. Okay. But also, they, were, they had it on house. Um, I haven't seen the episodes, so I don't know what happened. So, people's ideas of tilt testing might be a bit um, 
I think okay. I think mine definitely were before I spent time in there anyway so I sort of had images of of people being strapped to a bed and then it's sort of like tilting up and down and up and down repeatedly <laughs> for about 30 minutes and I wasn't quite sure you know trying to make people as dizzy as possible uh so <laughs> in our particular falls and syncope unit in Newcastle when someone arrives they have the history and the examination which includes a gait and balance assessment um, and then they have an active stand, and um, that's a, a lying and standing blood pressure. We use um, non-invasive beat-to-beat blood pressure monitoring, um, which is a little blood pressure cuff which sits on the finger. So every time um, the pulse, digital pulse travels through the finger, we get a blood pressure reading. Mm-hmm. That's useful to identify um, the pattern of any blood pressure drop when someone stands up or identify any brief drops in blood pressure when people stand up. So there's something called initial orthostatic hypertension, which you can't detect on a an, a traditional sphig because it would be a drop of 40 systolic within 15 seconds of standing, which you wouldn't get with normal um, monitor. Uh, the consensus is that someone should rest and then stand up for three minutes. There's no defined length of time that the rest should be, um, but it... Uh, when I've looked at it before, it should be around about five minutes. I think that's an important point, sorry to interrupt, because uh, if you're checking somebody's blood pressure on the ward, just bringing it back to the, the general setting mm. on the ward, and, I, and it doesn't uh, drop when you check it with your, you know, the, the automated uh, sphig after it you know, inflates, deflates, and then takes another minute to reset itself and, and goes again, it doesn't mean that they don't have postural blood pressure. It doesn't mean that they don't have orthostatic hypotension, does it? Yeah, so if, it, if, 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 if we think about the ward, I would ask the nurses to do it the first time they get up out of bed in the morning because they would be relatively dehydrated, so it's more likely to be positive and catch oh. it. So checking it after resting in bed and then... Turn on, get the monitor to check the blood pressure immediately on standing, and then as often as it can once they've stood up. Yeah. But probably once a minute for three minutes. And um, unfortunately, postural blood pressures are really bad to um, reproduce. Um, so if it's negative, keep doing it. Another thing I've noticed: if you ask the nurses on the ward to do postural blood pressures. They'll do them three times a day for a week. Uh, if you find someone's had a postural drop, they can stop checking it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got the answer. Yeah. 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 Especially if they do it and they have a massive one and then they don't tell you and they just keep doing it. So you're making them dizzy every yeah. time they're stood yeah. up three yeah. times a day for a week, which your patient's not going to thank you for. Uh, so yeah. uh, have a look at that as well and, yeah. and see whether it's actually been done. And, and if there is a drop, do something about it. Um Uh, as we've talked about before and uh, you know don't leave them just suffering through being stood up three times a day and what uh, so going back to Mark wants to know what happens on a tilt table yeah I now know what happens (laughs) on a tilt table but I'm sure if I was confused I'm sure a lot of the audience would be confused what 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 actually happens and what do we do it for well there's a number of reasons why we might do it so Uh, We might use the tilt table if someone's unable to stand up by themselves. So before I referred to the lying and standing blood pressure as an active stand, so we can use the tilt table to do a passive stand so that they're propped upright instead of standing upright by themselves. They're strapped in, so if they do blackout, they wouldn't just tumble down to the floor. 
Um, so that's one thing. We might do a passive stand for 10 minutes. Some pe- In fact, I've recently seen someone who was having um, unexplained syncope and it turned out she had delayed postural hypertension. So she was blacking out several minutes after she'd stood up, so she'd never linked it to standing. And we found that on her tilt test. But for her, we actually thought she had vasovagal syncope. So we put her in the tilt bed strapped in, wearing our beat-to-beat blood pressure monitoring and, and monitoring an ECG as well. And then um, we tilt her up to 70 degrees. So she's propped up, but not fully standing up. And uh, we try and let gravity do the job. So being upright pulls round about 800 mils down into your legs, most of which will be in the thighs. And that should stimulate the sympathetic nervous system to um, squeeze that blood back up towards the heart through vasoconstriction. Um, if someone's blood pressure doesn't drop sufficiently on doing that, we can give them GTN to lower their blood pressure. The point is we really want them to black out because we want to know that the symptoms they get with their blackouts are the symptoms they've been getting at home with their blackouts. Um, so if we show that they drop their blood pressure and reproduce the same symptoms, then we know that it's blood pressure that's caused their problems. Sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> and a little sadistic. It yeah. does, it does. Yeah. But and it's then, for their own good. It is. Yeah. And what about, Mark, thinking about just um, what on the wards on a day-to-day basis, what can we do to help our patients prevent falls? Simple things. What can we think about when we're doing a ward round? Um, well, I, I think probably... To start off with, it's recognising the people that are most likely to be at risk and make sure that we do what we can to minimise the risk. Um, make sure that uh, people who are uh, short-sighted or long-sighted or need their glasses have their glasses with them and have them on a lot of the time. Um, make sure the room's well lit. Think about people with delirium. Think about their medications. Um, think about their footwear. Mm. That's an yeah. important one as well. Yeah. The number um, of people you see walking in their slippers with the backs down on the slippers because yeah. they don't fit or they've just scrunched them down a bit at the back is is remarkable. <laughs> yeah, falls prevention in hospital is really, really difficult. And it can be done successfully, um, but it relies on a multi-factorial um, approach. So often a nurse, a physician, a physio and an OT working together can prevent inpatient falls. But the studies that have looked at it require every member of the team to be motivated. And every time you tick the box, yes, they're wearing unsuitable shoes to do something about yeah. it instead of just ticking the box. And that's what happens. You can in, you can have an initiative, bring it in, and it's successful, but it kind of died. The motivation dies down. I think that probably just reflects the fact that it's so complicated and it's not something that's straightforward. There's no yeah. one single intervention you can apply that yeah. will... Uh, will improve things for everybody um, because the reasons people fall are many and varied, as you've already said. So perhaps the best piece of advice is just to be mindful of people who are at risk. Well, there's there's an interesting thing coming out of Leeds. They've been looking at um, safety huddles. So every day on the ward, um, anyone who's there gets together in a huddle and reviews and it's like in a group hug type thing. And I think they have a maximum of just a few minutes to identify who's at risk of falling today and what are they going to do about it. And and they discuss anyone who has fallen and they 
um, work out what can they learn from mm-hmm. that person's fall. And actually, they had a very dramatic reduction in falls rates there. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. That's, yeah. We'll watch this space and we may hear yeah. more about that. I think they're trying to roll it out in a few other places now. I think they've sort of started to integrate it in some places. Um, so, what are the sort of current advances in falls at the moment? Any sort of hmm. current uh, big things that are happening? Or anything that you're doing at the moment? Um, one of the difficulties with falls research is that no one has made any really dramatic advances since the mid-90s, really. That's a long time ago. And that's either because we're not asking the right questions or our research isn't very good, or because the way we're doing it is the way that is the best approach. Mm. Yeah, there's nothing, it's not like cardiology where they do trials to get one person in a million living five minutes longer. Um, We don't have any advances like that. I think we tend to make small interventions that make a difference, don't we, rather than, you know, huge kind of big things that are necessarily going on. So we're not about to see Big Pharma produce Folly Down in Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, at a cost of £10,000 a shot and it'll stop people magically falling. Something um, no, but there is um, a, a drug that they've used in Japan for a long time called Droxidopa and they've used it... Um, <laughs> Sounds like it make you fall over. <laughs> <all of it. laughs> um, they use it in people with autonomic failure for their postural hypertension. It's just got a, its licence in America a couple of years ago and uh, I've done a meta-analysis on a few of the trials and it's looking very positive. The postural hypertension, although um, this is people with autonomic postural hypertension. In the older population that we see, they have more of a multi-systemic decompensation mm. rather than the autonomic mm. type of things. And so say we've got junior doctors listening to this Coticast, hopefully, and haven't switched off by now. Um, <laughs> what can they do or where can they go to get more experience in falls if they're interested or falls and syncope, etc.? How can they go about that? I would suggest finding a geriatrician and finding out who does their falls clinic and I think that the best experience will be from a geriatrics run falls clinic rather than a cardiology run falls or syncope clinic because um, older people have the more complexity so older people who fall or have dizziness usually have more than one reason for falling or dizziness so Mm -hmm. if you're seeing younger people the answer is usually a lot easier to find mm. whereas in older people it's more difficult so I would definitely choose a geriatric setting mm. um, yeah because I, I I don't think I realised until I was probably a later core medical trainee that falls and or falls and syncope clinics actually existed I think I just thought geriatricians did geriatric clinics and I don't, I don't mm. think I quite realised yeah, um, well, and, and they, they exist in most hospitals don't they I would yeah say. yeah Although not in all, um, so some, um, in fact, when I did, was still doing my training and I did the gen- a general geriatrics clinic, many of the referrals were for falls or dizziness rather than being referred to the falls mm. and syncope service there. So it is something that's needed for general geriatrics yeah. anyway. So going to a general geriatrics clinic, would you, you'd see quite a lot of that. Yeah, anyway, yeah. But... I, and I guess there's a lot of overlap in geriatrics. So the TIA clinic is somewhere else where... Um, at least when I did it, we see a lot of people with dizziness or postural hypotension rather than... In fact, it was a non-TIA clinic. Really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. I think spending time with physios and, yes. and occupational therapists is a good thing as well because they can often teach you things that are 
that doctors can't. We haven't <laughs> mentioned occupational therapists very much, have we? And we no. should have, because that's, that is one of the most important interventions that really does prevent falls, is occupational therapist in someone's house reviewing the home hazards. It yeah. really works. Yeah, and that's really important, actually, isn't yeah. it? You know, seeing someone's setting and where they live and, yeah. and you know, what they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Because if you walk into your own house, you don't notice something that's mm. been there for a long time. You mm. A fresh pair of eyes you might see a cord or a, an edge of a carpet rug that's turned up or something. I think we've uh, we've pretty much covered our, our falls coverage for today. Um, before we wrap things up, I'm going to ask you in a second, as ever, for your Coticast commandment, which is uh, just a short um, commandment of, of like a take-home message almost um, from each of you. Um, so have a think about that. And before we wrap things up, I'll just mention we always attach links and resources to our Coticast online website at aeme.org.uk. So take a look if you want to find out more information about clinical practice and ongoing research and improvements and we'll stick a few links on there so as ever mark your learning point your coty cast commandment for today oh this one's easy for me and i'm sorry if you disagree with it james but (laughs) but it's never right mechanical fall (laughs) yeah i I think that that's a good one isn't it um mine's going to be um a a triad or a triple it's going to be medication review Referral to physiotherapists and referral to occupational therapists, and and that is the triad. Okay, and I think mine would be uh, take a good history. I think I think with falls, ninety percent of the diagnosis is in history, and I think that's really helpful. Um, so great. So uh, thanks for everything we've talked about tonight, and I hope everyone found it interesting. And thanks for your contribution, James. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, thank you as ever for. Uh, for your contributions as well mark um we'll be back with another katie cast soon if there's anything or any other topic you'd like covered that we haven't so far please let us know via email or voicemail at ame.org.uk um anything else to add no just thanks again to james that was really interesting chat yeah you're very welcome wonderful thanks for coming um so i'll say good night for me and good night for me (laughs) 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 that's what they're there